Uh, For the rest of us, hey, let's grab a copy of God's Word or turn your Bible on, and uh, let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Today, this is the, the third sermon in this series on work, overflowing in the nine to five. And here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at a key text that has pretty big ramifications for how we are to think of our work, and, and particularly, what does God-centered work look like? And so, in preparation uh, for the sermon um, over the past week, I've been doing a lot of reflection on my previous work experience. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I learned about work as a kid. My parents put me to work. Anybody? Anybody else? Yes. They put a vacuum in my hand, and they set me off to work. They sent me to the restrooms. They go clean the bathrooms. I I distinctly remember at at one point my brother telling me, he's eight years older than me, he said, John, the goal of vacuuming is not to see how fast you can cover every square inch of our house and get it done. He says, "If if the floors aren't clean, you haven't done your job. You see, I saw it as a game. If I covered everything, it was done. It didn't matter how fast I flew over the floor. Um, But I learned about work at an early age. Really, moving on, probably my first real job was for a a landscaping company called Added Touch. I mean, we put the added touch on your landscaping. Even to this day, I love working with my hands yesterday. Got to spend some good time with the family in the yard doing some landscaping at my own house. But that's really probably the first time I learned for somebody other than my mom or dad, um, a boss, and then serving with other co-workers and just learning the, like the basics of, of what you learn in a job, like showing up on time, being responsible, how do you interact with other people, receiving a paycheck, and things like that. I, that was a job that I did in summers while in high school, and then when I would come home from college, he would just let me jump in and serve with him. Another job I had in college, I won't spend a ton of time here, I worked as a ski instructor at Ski Beach in North Carolina. Yes, they do get snow in North Carolina. Um, I I did not make a bunch of money from that job, um, but I got to ski for free, which was why um, I did it. So what I learned in that job was some jobs have certain benefits. That one, it was you work and you get to ski all that you want. Well, just kind of fast forwarding. I've had some other jobs, interning, some ministry jobs. But when we moved to Boston to plant Redemption Hill Church, this was roughly, it was roughly nine years ago that God put it in the heart of my wife and I to say, get out of the Bible Belt, get to a major city, and to help plant Redemption Hill Church. We'd connected up with Tanner and Marsha and the Turleys and, and another family that came with us and a single lady. And, and as we made plans, I had to figure out, I knew God wanted me in Boston, but how was I going to provide for my family? I had a full-time job in North Carolina that I stepped away from. We went and raised money, and in addition to that, I got a job. So what do you do? I, I have a, a communication degree from college that really couldn't employ me doing anything. Um, I had spent seven years in seminary, and I'm going to plant a church that there was no church, so there was no, there was no way I was getting money really from that. And so what I did is... I looked at my wife, and I, and, and I went and applied for her favorite restaurant. I applied as a server at P.F. Chang's. And so um, for the first two and a half years in Boston, I worked at Cambridge Side Gallery Mall 
at P.F. Chang's as a server. There are two things I remember from my uh, interview there. The first one, um, and this is the guy that interviewed me, we still interact today, um, a great guy, but he said, are, are you going to try to proselytize and convert all of us? That was his first question, because um, he knew, he like, it just, hey, why are you coming to Boston? I'm like, well, I'm coming here to plant a church, and I've got to find a job, and so that was his first question. Um, the second thing that I remember from that um, was that I never served in my entire life. In fact, so I've got this landscaping job and a ski instructor job. That doesn't like suit up very well on a resume to be a server at P.F. Chang's. So I, I distinctly remember having this conversation with him and saying, look, I know that I've never worked in a restaurant. Um, my mom's a great cook, but I, I've never worked in a, in a restaurant. Um, but I know a lot about serving. Because as a follower of Jesus, he says, I came not to be served but to serve and lay down my life. And I says, I'll promise you this, I will be the best server that you've ever had. Now, I'm not like, I wasn't trying to be arrogant or boastful. Hey, I'm going to take what I know about who Jesus is, and I'm going to apply that to the best of my ability here at P.F. Chang's. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that's the statement that hired me, but, but I did enough in that interview that he gave me the job. Um, and so I, I worked at P.F. Chang's, and I would say as I think about how I relate to many of you guys, now I'm full-time here at Redemption Hill. So many of you guys are like, man, you're just a pastor. You don't understand the shoes I'm walking through. Those two and a half years at P.F. Chang's, I wrestled with a ton of issues and what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in the workforce. For those of you that don't know, servers um, in Massachusetts get paid like $2 an hour. I don't know. It may have changed um, it's pretty close to that, right? And the reality, if you've served, is you don't see that money. It goes all to taxes, basically. So um, th- that's, you know, they've got to pay you something. You get paid the bare minimum. So the way you earn your income is through tips. It's simply that. So if, if I don't get tipped, I don't make any money. My goal at P.F. Chang's was to work sufficiently well enough but as little enough to provide for my family. I wasn't there to hang out. There's a lot of people I worked with, like that was not just their work, that was their life. And so they worked together, and then they went and did everything together. I had great relationships there, but I had a family and I had kids, and I'm also trying to finish a PhD. And so um, I, man, so stepping back here for a second. Was I going to stereotype every single table that I was given based on what I thought they would tip me? Was I going to base my level of service for this table based on what I thought they could produce or provide for me? I wrestle with these every single table, a spiritual battle, because I knew, like, I'm doing this for the Lord, but I also need money, like I'm providing for my family. And so there's there's these twisted motivations that get at work and get at play there. How was I going to respond when I had just served to the best of my ability and I go collect a check and there's zero dollars left for a tip? And it happens frequently. How was I going to respond when every other server I worked with, and as far as I know, I think there was only one server I worked with that was a follower of Christ. There may have been more. 
they go and put a great show out at the table, and then behind the scenes, it's cursing left and right. It's complaining about everything going on, complaining about the guests at their table. How was I? Was I going to jump in that? What does it look like me as a follower of Jesus to live in that and let my light shine for two and a half years? What about this? How was I going to respond when I had done everything right? And don't get like I wasn't the best server. Like there were, I blew it at times. Like you, I'm not perfect. So, but I tried to do the best of my ability. How was I going to respond when I, I'd taken the order, I've plugged it in correctly, and either the food was late or it wasn't prepared well or the wrong thing got to the table, and you know who's bearing the heat of it? The chefs in the kitchen don't have to face anybody. We do. And so I'm getting an earful, and I've done everything right. How am I going to respond? I could go on and on. I'll share one more. How was I going to respond? What was I going to do at the end of the night when I'm wrapping up? And you know what you do as a server? You report your tips. Now, for those of and this is, you can go hang with servers and they'll talk with you about this. You've at least got to report what was noted on a credit card because you can track those. But what, what about all the cash that I just put in my pocket? What was I reporting? You see, I wrestled with a ton of issues on how, what it looks like to work, to please God, to work and do things when I could get away with things or nobody was watching? Or what about the things that I did well that never got rewarded? Or when I got punished for things that weren't my fault? My guess is you guys can probably all relate into some, some way in your work and how all of this happens. Here's what I want to do today. I want us to think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to have our light shine bright and make much of God, overflowing in work nine to five. And I want to do that through this text here in Colossians. So look at your Bible here with me. Colossians, we could break it down into two halves. In this first half, Paul spends his time talking about the person and work of Jesus. You can see that in chapter 1. I'm just going to highlight a few things here. In chapter 1, verses 21, And you, who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above approach before him. This is what Jesus has done for you. That's the whole first part of the book. Then when we come to chapter 2, In chapter 2, he begins talking about how Jesus changes everything in your life. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, therefore, in light of what I've just told you about who Jesus is and the work that he's done, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so what? Walk in him. And then what he does in the rest of the book is he fleshes out what does it look like to walk in Christ. Now, I'm going to fast forward to chapter 3, verse 17. Go to chapter 3, verse 17, and this is going to prepare us for thinking about verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. In 317, Paul concludes this section and says this, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything 
in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now we could just pause right here. Is your nine to five work included in 317? You guys can talk. It's okay if you talk back to me. Yes, thank you. Let me, let me, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything. That includes how we think about and go about doing our work. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is our aim as followers of Jesus. And then what Paul does is he jumps into this section about rules for Christian households. Because here's what, here's what the gospel does. You guys hang around with us long enough. If you're new, you're going to find. When we talk about the gospel, we don't talk about it just changing our Sundays. The gospel changes everything. Our Monday to Saturday. It changes even as Paul talks about here. Wives. He addresses wives in verse 18. In verses 19, he addresses husbands. The way you treat your wives. The gospel changes that. In in verse 20, he speaks to children. Yes, children, the gospel changes the way you interact in the home. And then he talks to fathers in verse 21. And then in 22, he addresses bondservants. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he addresses masters. Now, here's what I want to focus on today. We're going to look at this section on bondservants and masters. Now, I want to share a few things before we jump in. One, back in this time in the New Testament, bondservants and masters were actually part of the family here. There is no direct parallel for us right now. So what we're doing when when we're reading this is we're drawing a theology of work based on how he addressed these bondservants and masters to interact. And probably for us, the closest parallel to think about is the employer-employee relationship, those above us and those underneath us. And so here's what I'm going to do. That's where I'm going to focus. My goal today, I'm not going to address the issue of slavery, slaves, bondservant, and this language in the New Testament. For the most part, I would agree with what the ESV study Bible says this. The scriptures regulate that institution without commending it. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time there. We can do a sidebar coffee and talk more about how that is handled in the New Testament. But what I do want to do is draw out what are the implications for how we are to think about work in what Paul says here to bondservants and masters. So let's read through this passage here, beginning in verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer, will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let me just draw your attention to a few things here. 
before we jump in. The first is there's a repeated phrase that we see throughout here. You see it um, implicitly in verse 22 where he says, Bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. He's implying here they're earthly masters, but there is a master, a heavenly master who is over all. Then we go to verse 23, and he talks about fearing the Lord. And then in verse um, and then going on, work whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. So here's the main point that I want to plead with you today is that we should make pleasing God the central aim of all our work. Make pleasing God the central aim of all your work. And if that's going to happen, I just want to, there are four implications of the text that I want to challenge us with today in light of that, to do that. And the first one is this. If we're going to make pleasing God the central aim, well then, first of all, work must be done under the authority of God. It should be done under the authority of God. Looking back at the text here with me. Verse 22. You obey your earthly masters. But there's a heavenly master, which we see referenced in chapter 4, verse 1, when he addresses masters. Treat your bondservers justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And then this language, fear the Lord, work for the Lord. So as we think about working under the authority of God, we see, first of all, that ultimately he is the master over all. And that every earthly master, every CEO will give an account to the heavenly master. Every employer and employee, both here, he addresses the bondservants and the masters. They are to live to please God. They will give an account before God. And in particular, he gives some motivations here. Here's why you're to fear the Lord. Here's why you're to work as for the Lord. He tells us that in verses 24 and 25. The the, the motivation in 24 is the Lord rewards. Verse 24, here's why you should work for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now think about this for bond servants real quick. This would have instilled hope because they probably saw very few rewards in their lifetime. And so he's saying this, like, how are you going to tell a bond servant, hey, look, don't work for your earthly master, work for the Lord. Here's why. Because even though you are not rewarded in this lifetime, God sees everything, and he is the one whose ultimate reward that you should be living for and pursuing. So the motivation to fear God is he is the ultimate rewarder, but also he is also the punisher. In verse 25, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. 
what about the phrase, and there's no partiality? When we stand before God, it doesn't matter if you are the CEO of Amazon or you are the one preparing the peppers at P.F. Chang in the back that nobody saw. He shows no partiality. We all stand before God on a flat level, and we will give an account for our life. And so even in this world, there may be bosses, CEOs, and those at the very bottom and in between. When we stand before God, those are wiped away, and there's no partiality before him. He is the one who rewards, and he is the one who punishes. Another implication of working under the authority of God, look at chapter 4, verse 1. When he talks to masters, he says, Treat your bondservants justly and fairly. In other words, you ought to treat those underneath you in a way that reflects the values of the king. And the king values justice and fairness. And so when we see all of our work, whether we're a CEO somewhere in between or at the bottom, we see that King Jesus is the one who gives us the values for how we go about doing our work. Now let me draw out a few implications for us related to work. The first one that ought to be pretty clear is this. We primarily should pursue and do our work not to please people, but to please God. And the primary motivation is he's the one that will give an account. He is the one who rewards and the one who punishes. Let me give you a second encouragement. None of your work will go unnoticed and unrewarded by God. Look, I know what it's like to do really hard work and never get an attaboy for it. Or to do really good work and get the opposite. I don't have to fight for the, for the reward, the earthly reward or the earthly praise for man. I will live to please God. But there's also another encouragement here. None of the injustices I face will go unnoticed unnoticed and unpunished by God. Not only will the things that I've done well, also the things that have been brought to me that I didn't deserve, none of that gets by God's eye. And then finally, as you think about your work, when we say, okay, I want to live under the authority of God, we've all got to spend time thinking about what are the values of the king that should be reflected in my work? There's two mentioned here, justice and fairness. But that's not all of it. The more more time you spend with God, the more you're going to seek to reflect who God is in the work that you do. Which means this. Oftentimes when we think about our work, we prioritize efficiency. How fast can I get something done? But when we think about living under the authority of God, we may not prioritize efficiency. We may prioritize effectiveness, doing the right thing in the right way over just getting the right things done. 
or just getting things done. You guys follow me? Doing the right thing in the right way versus just getting something done. Because you can get things done and they may not be the right things that you need to be getting done. And you can get things done and they may not be done in the right way. And the more you spend time with him, I think the more you're going to see, he's going to challenge you to put others first. And that goes countercultural to everything that the world's going to tell you about your job. Because your job is about you. But this world isn't about you. And this is at the heart of the gospel, is that we were created not for us, but to make much of God. And at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's about living in such a way that shows the beauty of who God is. So that's why you may at times even sacrifice and and you serve. Because... You're not primarily pursuing what's in it for you. So we work underneath the authority of God. The second thing is we work in the presence of God. Looking back at the text here, we see Paul give a negative, and then he gives us the positive. Negatively, he says this in verse 22. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. These are people who work only when other people are watching them. They're they're working primarily to please somebody else. These are those that are are just trying to do the bare minimum and get by. As I was reflecting this week, um, I I remembered, anybody watch March Madness in here? We just came through March Madness in basketball. See, we got some basketball fans in here. Some of you are like, man, I don't don't care about college basketball. We're just talking about the Celtics and how they're going to finish out this series. That's okay. March Madness, it's like, man, the first round of the turn, I don't know how many games it is, and they, it's like Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Here's the problem, man. I'm at work, and March Madness is going on. So you guys probably know what I'm talking about. Check this out. So, you know, you go, you're at work, and, and they've figured out a way to get around this. So um, when, you, when you pull up to watch it, look at the very top right corner, and what do you see there? It's called a boss button. Because here's the deal, you're not supposed to be watching this at work. So when the boss, somebody who sees you walks by, you click the boss button. And you know what pops up? Check this out. Office etiquette. Watch your team dominate up to five devices at once. Look, like boss walks by, and not only are you watching the March Madness, but he thinks you're figuring out how to way to make your team better and kill it at work. If you've done this, don't confess right now. You can just go before God and, and, and work that out. No, in all seriousness, coming back here, as we think of, like, people-pleasing, we've got to have a larger motivation than this. Think about it. If your aim is to please people, there's a lot of work that we do that no one ever sees. There's a lot of work that you do that no one ever sees. And here's the other deal. When you make people pleasing like your your aim, we're tempted to cut corners and we're, we're tempted to slack off when nobody's watching. But there's a larger issue at work. 
Think about it. When, when we talk about ple- people pleasing, who gets the glory? When my work is described by pleasing others, it's really I'm working in such a way so that they can see how, how good I am. I want to minimize the bad. I want to cover that up in any way that I can, and I want to show how great John Chastain is. But one guy writing and reflecting on this, Philip Holmes notes this. He says, anytime we attempt to rob God of his glory, we consequently rob ourselves of joy because we make ourselves slaves to the opinions of men. When you pursue people-pleasing, you will be a slave to people. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a slave to my boss the whole, my whole life. I want to live to please an audience of one. And so let me just, I mean, this is where you've got to get personal and look inward and not left and right. What does your work look like? This may be work in the home. This may be work at Redemption Hill. This may be work that you get paid for or don't get paid for, what does your work look like when nobody's watching? Do you find yourself a slave to the opinions of others? That's the negative. There's a better way. The better way is when Paul states the positive. He says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. I want to teach you about a, phrase, a Latin phrase called Coram Deo. Coram Deo is a Latin phrase that means in the presence of God or before the face of God. R.C. Sproul, writing on his blog, gives this explanation. He says, to live Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. What if, instead of what, what if we just threw away people-pleasing and said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do God-pleasing. I want to live Coram Deo, like 24-7 in the presence of God. Hey, and by the way, this is what it means to live a life of worship because none of us can ever escape the presence of God. But oftentimes we work as if God, we don't, we're not even aware that God sees all of this that we're doing. To work this way requires an intentional mindset. Um, One of of my favorite short works, that, if you've been around me, I've probably shared it with you, is a work by Tim Challies called Do More Better. And it's a a work on biblical productivity. Him fleshing out what does it look like to be productive as a follower of Jesus. It's a quick read, very practical as well. At the end of his section, he's got a a chapter in there that fleshes out what his daily planning session looks like. And you know what he calls it? He calls it Coram Deo. So before he starts jumping into the task of the day, It's him reminding himself that I am living in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God, and it's asking God for strength and wisdom to work in such a way that makes that real in his life. 
when we start living this way, it changes everything. Our motivations change. Our work changes. And our response, get this, to interruptions change. Anybody ever just get frustrated? Like, you got a, 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 like you've got your work planned, and somebody gets in your way. And it can, I'm the only one. Okay, thank you. Because I love productivity. I start with a daily review, and I plan out my day. What happens when something, and Charles will tell you this, the, the biggest problem with productivity is we don't know the future. So how do I plan for that? How do I plan for these interruptions? But what we're tempted to do is respond to interruptions with despair and anger because they weren't a part of my plan. But this changes when you start living in light of the presence of God. C.S. Lewis I mean, gives us a great quote to reflect on. He says this, The great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life, the life God is sending one day by day. What one calls one's real life is a phantom of one's own imagination. When we start living Coram Deo, we start realizing that God is completely sovereign even over the interruptions in our life. And we see that he does a better job of planning our days than we do. One practical implication of this may be that as you start thinking about doing your work to the glory of God and in the presence of God, you start intentionally building margin into your days because you know that God's going to send you a holy interruption. And you want to respond not with anger or despair, but with opportunity. So we've looked at working under the authority of God, working in the presence of God. Third, work by the grace and power of God. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but here's, here's what I want us to do. This phrase in 323, whatever you do, work heartily. If you were to look in the Greek there, it's actually from the soul. Now, in scriptures, oftentimes heart and soul are used synonymously. One commentator reflecting on this, if, he says if he were to draw a distinction, he would say the soul stresses the life principle and expanded energy rather than just the pure choice, which comes from the heart. But when we think of working heartily, like, I'm going to give, like, from the soul, like, I'm putting, like, deep down all of who I am, I want to work in such a way as for the Lord. How do we do that? I want to show you how Paul do that, did that. Go back to Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. This is a, a verse Tanner concluded, I believe, his first sermon on. But it works well with us being in Colossians here. Colossians 1. 28 and 29, Paul writes, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
Paul is toiling with the, with the strength and power that God is working in him to accomplish the work that God has given. What's the work? Present everyone mature in Christ. How did he go about that? He did everything. He toiled, but it was the, it was the power of God in him. Let me show you a parallel verse I've got on the screen up here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. In college, I really wrestled a ton thinking about the grace of God and how that responds to my work. And a guy on a mission trip in Turkey sent me to this passage, and it just blew my mind that summer. It's Paul, and he says this, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Did you just hear what Paul said? I worked harder. But I didn't work. I worked in such a way that at the end of the day, it could be said that it really wasn't me that worked, and it was the grace of God that was with me. John Piper, reflecting on this, says this, The grace of God is so decisive and powerful in the good work I'm doing that it's fitting to say that I am not doing it. When we think about our work, and Paul knew this very well, we work by the grace and power of God. When I say grace, it is the undeserved, the unmerited favor of God. It is by grace and grace alone. It is God's favor. It's because he's accepted me in Christ. I'm not working, so to the end of the day, God will accept me. Here's how grace motivates and and empowers our work. I'm already accepted because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross, and so I'm now freed to work with that grace empowering me. It's freeing. I can do the best that I can. I can toil. I can work harder than anybody because of the power of God in me for the glory of God. If we are going to work heartily for the Lord, We must work with a deep, humble, and constant dependence upon God. Work under the authority of God. Work in the presence of God. Work by the grace and power of God. And then finally, we'll wrap up here. Work for the good of others to the glory of God. I wish I had another 30 minutes to go. I'm sorry, guys. I don't. Um, if we were to go back to Colossians 3, if, if we're not supposed to work pleasing people, the opposite of that would be to work to please God. It is, it is to work in such a way that I bring him glory and not myself glory. And one of the primary ways we do that is by doing good works in our work. Matthew 5.16 connects these together. I've got on the screen there for you. It says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You ought to do your work in such a way that you are doing good works for others, 
that they see the glory of God. Not that they say, great job, you're so good. They ought to see our good works and say, God is a great God. Tim Challey's reflecting on this and do more better. He says, Jesus calls you to let your light shine before others, and this light is more like a dimmer switch than it is an off and on switch. You can reflect more or less of that light to shine before men. What would it look like to take that dimmer switch and put it on full display this week? When we think of glorifying God, John Piper's really helped me thinking about this. He says we can do this in one of two ways. One, we can think of magnifying or glorifying God like a microscope, or we can think of it like a telescope. A microscope makes small things look bigger than they really are. That's not what we're doing. We're not trying to let people, hey, God's a small God, and we're making him bigger than he really is. We're actually magnifying God like a telescope where you can look in and you can see things that are unimaginably great for what they really are so that you can look in and see the galaxies, which would blow your mind, but they only look small, but through a telescope, they look great. Our lives, by doing good works, are are supposed to put on display the greatness of God. So let me just draw a few implications and bring this to a close. If that's the case, our work should be about doing good works to others for the glory of God. Not to make me look good, but to make God look good. But that's the first. Now let me just draw an implication from that. If my goal is to do good works and bring glory to God, then I should leverage my life to do as much good as possible. You agree? I should leverage my life to do as much good as possible. John Wesley says this, do all the good you can, but all the means you can, and all the ways you can, and all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. This is why I care about productivity. I don't just care about productivity for getting things done. David Allen, reading Getting Things Done, if you haven't read, like that completely I wasn't given that as a young kid. I had to figure that out on my own. And I was like, wow, this is great. But now to think from a biblical worldview, how do I get things done? I'm motivated to get things done, not for the four-hour work week. Any of you guys read that? The four-hour work week, it's about how you can spend less time at work and go travel the world and live it up. I want to be efficient, effective, and productive so that I can amplify and maximize my opportunity to do more good. What if you took your 50-hour work week and you could do that in 35 hours because of productivity? Now you freed up 15 hours to go do more good. You guys following me? So my goal isn't to be as lazy as possible and see how long I can drag this work out. I want to do it to the best of my ability, to the glory of God, so that I can move on and turn that dimmer switch up and keep doing good. Two of the best resources on this I've mentioned already. One is Do More Better by Tim Challies. That's what it looks like right there. Another one is a, is a book by Matt Perman called What's Best Next? 
I would highly, these are, these are two guys that have really thought about productivity from a biblical worldview. I would recommend taking some time and working through those. But here's what I want to do. I want to give you a few practical encouragements and then wrap up. How do we think about doing good to others? And these are from Matt Perman's book, What's Best Next? The first one is this. Put others first, serve them. Put others first, serve them. The second one is this. Be eager to meet the needs of others. I can tell if you're eager or not. So can somebody else. There ought to be an eagerness to it. Third, be proactive, not reactive in doing good. It's not, the command isn't, hey, stumble upon doing some good today. It's actually do good works. Like you ought to be strategizing, planning. That's the whole, that's why productivity matters. It's not like just accidentally do some good works this week. It's you leverage your life to go do good works. And two of the best questions that have helped me is, what can I do to serve and how can I surprise? The serve question, I ask it at every single one of my roles in life, as a dad, as a husband, as a pastor, as a community group member, how do I serve and then how do I surprise? Serve answers the question, what must I do? Surprise answers the question, what are the possibilities I can do? Now, as we wrap up, think about what happens in your workplace when you live under the authority of God, in the presence of God, by the power and grace of God, for the good of others to the glory of God. Here's what happens. It paves the way for the gospel. Tim Keller in his book, Center Church, says this. If our work is shoddy, our verbal witness only leads listeners to despise our beliefs. Look, I'll be clear. Your work's not going to save anybody. But there may be people in your work that want nothing to do with Jesus because your work has not adorned the gospel. It's been a blemish to the gospel. We ought to pray every day, God, may it never be that I work in such a way that blemishes the gospel, but I work in such a way that I adorn the gospel. The dimmer lich, the dimmer switch is lit. It's all the way up, and I am shining. One of the books that God used in my life in college is a book by Piper called Don't Waste Your Life. And in there, he's got a chapter, Don't Waste Your I think is make much of eight to five. And he says this, having such high standards of excellence and such integrity and such manifest goodwill that we put no obstacles in the way of the gospel, but that we would call attention to the all-satisfying beauty of Jesus. What if through your work, God gave you the opportunity, hey, let me tell you, about this grace and power. Let me tell you about the all-satisfying beauty of Christ who's shaping everything that I do in my work. Could it be that God uses that to draw people in greater Boston to the gospel? That's my prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come before you
and I come before you not as one who's perfect in my work. God, I come before you as one who has failed probably many times. And so I, even today, rely on the grace that is mine in Christ, that he went to the cross for all of my imperfect work. But God, I plead with you today that we would be a church that views our nine to five in such a way that it is loaded with God-glorifying gospel opportunity. God, would you change us? God, I pray you would wake us up tomorrow morning or if it's going to work tonight in such a way that we're like, God, I need you to live under your authority and your presence. God, I can't, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. God, we need you. I need you. I need your power to help me to toil and labor today for the good of others and for your glory. God, would you help us to turn to you with injustice and unfairness? And God, I pray that this time next year, there's somebody sitting in these seats who's experienced the beauty of Christ because the gospel was adorned in the workforce. God, give us an openness and an opportunity to share and boast of Christ and our work and make much of you, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.